if there is a known path for getting there, then it will not be great. And so I think there's this principle that is kind of alluded to that you need to kind of have this, this path or this journey that has some forms of exploration, some striving for novelty that puts you in places where it's very hard for others to end up just because that'll kind of lead to the uniqueness that is kind of like, I think the prerequisite for doing whatever you consider to be great. In this episode, I'm joined by Cameron Porter, investor at Alicorp, a New York City-based venture studio that's incubated the likes of Business Insider, MongoDB, and more. After leading all of college soccer and scoring his senior year at Princeton, Cam dropped out to play professional soccer in the MLS while simultaneously working for the league as a software engineer. We talk startup ideation, contextualizing his unconventional path into venture, and above all, why greatness can't be planned. Hope you enjoy. So let's kick things off with a very broad but important question. In your mind, what makes for a good startup idea and how do you go about the process of coming up with one? I think at the highest level, what makes for a good startup idea is something that a talented individual is willing to commit their time to. I think this is ultimately like the biggest test. If an idea isn't compelling enough for talented people to want to dedicate their time to it, it's probably not worth pursuing. And I think that if you're trying to generate startup ideas, much of that process is the idea of generating narratives that attract talented people. And in the world that I come from as a venture studio, a lot of what I do is trying to generate those narratives systematically and trying to attract compelling founders to build companies with us. So Cam, and we can definitely talk more about the mechanics of how Alicorp goes about this process later on, but would you be able to give us a brief overview of how Alicorp goes about this process and how you think about startup ideation? Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's no one size fit all to this process, but we kind of have a series of methodologies that help to kind of uncover different areas of opportunity. And I think one of the clearest processes that is probably most systematic is kind of taking a, a high level view of the large companies that exist and just take the US for example, where you have roughly like 3,500 companies in the US that are both public and private you can take that data set of companies and you can filter them down to which companies are doing over $500 million in revenue per year. You have a set of companies that have large user bases, large customer bases. You can then take those companies and look at data over the past 10 years and you can say, which of these companies are growing, which of these companies are stagnating, and which of these companies are kind of decreasing or, or kind of shrinking over time. And what you do is you take that, that base of large company with shrinking user base or customer base. And I think what you see there is an opportunity to tackle these or look into these potential industries where if the companies are of a certain age, potentially pre-2008, pre-mobile revolution, they probably have room for a new startup entrant to kind of rethink how you can deliver the, their value proposition in a new way, given the context of cloud computing, mobile computing, whatever it is. And I think we kind of take that approach over and over and over again and try and revisit it at least once a year to kind of see what areas are, are new and top of mind. And that tends to be something that I think more people could do, especially if you layer on any experience that you have in the workplace 
that will kind of predispose you to any one of those industries. Interesting. So in a sense, you're, you're kind of de-risking the ideation process by looking at the intersection of, of different themes, markets that are already proven in a sense. Yeah. And I think one of the, the key parts of the ideation process is pushing you to get outside of whatever areas you have kind of an inclination or predisposition to looking into. I mean, for me, I come from a computer science background, so machine learning is very attractive. I spent time playing professional sports, so looking into companies that are kind of serving the sports industry would be something that would be intuitively interesting. But if you're looking to kind of be in the world of kind of systematic ideation, you need to kind of find ways to get outside of your comfort zone or outside of the areas that you have natural inclination to want to dig into because you're very quickly going to run out of ideas. And so a lot of what these methodologies are, are a means to kind of expose you to different areas, different industries, different sectors, different business models, because ultimately I think where interesting ideas and opportunities come from is the intersection of one idea or one model of company formation brought to a new industry that in some ways might be lagging behind what's possible. So I actually want to pause on this for a moment. Uh, we'll definitely talk more about this later. Uh, but transition into talking about Cameron Porter, the soccer player. So while I was a freshman at Princeton, I had the opportunity to watch you absolutely dominate the Ivy League as a senior. But I'd love to hear you tell the very serendipitous story of how you ended up playing soccer at Princeton and then beyond. Yeah, it, it definitely was a serendipitous story. And I think that serendipity has kind of extended into my life in venture capital or venture studio as well. But um, I definitely did not expect to be playing soccer at Princeton uh, when I was a sophomore, I believe. I received a letter or an email from, I believe it was Emory University. And I remember going to my mom and the email said something like, we'd be interested in seeing Cameron play in this game. We think that he could potentially be someone that would play soccer at Emory. And I sat there with my mom and I was like, did you know that it, you, know, you could go to college for playing sports and that this is something I could potentially do? It was not at all on our radar, especially given the fact that I was going to a school, I think we graduated with 45 people total, so 20 boys. We didn't have enough people to field a football team, so soccer was the biggest sport, merely because we had enough guys on the field to play. Um, and so it was by no means an expectation. I didn't go to kind of a big sports school. But I was kind of fortunate to, fortunate to be around parents who kind of supported the idea that you should dedicate your time to the things you find exciting and enjoying. I, I, would, I would spend my nights and, and weekends kind of dribbling a soccer ball around my garage and largely doing it because it was a means of escapism from academia, which I was pouring a lot of my time into. And by the time I reached my senior year, I had committed to go to Princeton and that was an incredible feat. And my expectation going to and getting into Princeton was largely just that I got to have the pleasure of being part of a division one sports program at a school that I was, and it couldn't be more excited to be at given what it's, stands as an academic institution. And so when I was there, I think the real kind of breakthrough moment that kind of changed the, the course of my, my soccer career was really the star forward at the time, this guy Antoine Hoppeno suffering an injury that meant that he was unavailable to play in the first preseason games. I had been recruited as a forward. I had no expectation of being there and kind of had the opportunity to perform uh, and it was kind of those first games that you kind of get a taste of what it's like and you get an opportunity. And if you kind of seize those opportunities, it kind of dovetailed and gained momentum where over the course of the next four years, 
I think I ended up starting almost every single game. I don't think I missed a single game because of injury. And that's really what led to this senior season, which in many ways was so serendipitous because I had essentially kind of given up on the idea that I was playing professional soccer. It wasn't even something I was pursuing. So going into my senior season, I had not spent the summer training like most people do. I was actually working on a starting a consulting startup with a few friends in DC. The closest thing we did to training was waking up in the morning, going on long runs through uh, Rock Creek Park in Washington, DC before spending the day working, trying to act like we were a real consulting firm, answering questions for big Fortune 500 companies. So it was totally unexpected to kind of have that feed into a, a season like the one that you witness. So you end up getting drafted by the Montreal Impact. Uh, and simultaneously, you're also working for the league as a software engineer. What was that experience like playing professional soccer, but then also working for the league at the, uh, at the same time? I think that, I think with, with so many things, it's, it's so interesting when you get to sit on both sides of the fence. And so, I mean, now in the, the venture world, I think that I get to kind of do the same thing where I'm both starting companies with Alicorp and then we are both investing in companies. And so you get to see kind of how the world operates holistically. And in the professional sports world, there's a relatively large disconnect, I think, between what players think organizations are optimizing for, what they think the organization is trying to do, and then on the flip side, what the organization is actually doing and how they view the players as assets in that kind of growth and process. And I think one of the, the most interesting things was just kind of being able to sit on both sides of that equation and kind of see how both sides were playing a different game and in many ways, what I think was most interesting was outside of just the engineering problems you're solving was just that the MLS in and of itself, this entity is playing a much longer term game than any one of the players is playing for the most part. They're optimizing for creating a league over the next 20 to 30 years and understanding how do you create parity between teams and are less concerned with the individual well-being of any given player, which is pretty much what every player is optimizing for. And so I think it was a really eye-opening experience kind of being a part of kind of both camps and getting to kind of learn about why these tensions exist because of the incentives at play. So how do you contextualize all this time that you've spent on soccer up to this point in your life? You know, someone cynical might say, Cam, you wasted all this time on a sport that's no longer a part of your day-to-day -day life. Don't you wish you spent your time doing something else? What would you say to something like that? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think there's many ways to kind of post facto rationalize the time you spend doing certain things and kind of tie the strings together in, in whatever way. I mean, the, the simplest ones are the tropes you would hear from kind of anyone around the, the value of professional sports and that, or sports in general, is that you, you learn about team building, you learn about camaraderie, you learn about how do you kind of compete and establish cultures of success. And I think all of those things are true. I think there are other benefits in that. I just think that sports and the reason I kind of ended up, I feel like on this pathway is, is, was less out of a desire to kind of achieve the status of being a professional soccer player, but more from just the pure enjoyment of, of playing the sport. I remember this was actually probably one of the bigger sources of tension between myself and the, the coaching staff at Princeton. There was one year kind of in our annual review meeting where each player meets with the coaching staff and they ask you, why are you doing this? And, and my answer was, I enjoy working hard and having fun. And, and soccer is like the easiest manifestation of that. And I think that it's hard to kind of look back with regret 
if you're kind of doing both of those things. And that's kind of how I contextualize my soccer career is really where I, I learned how to kind of embody that value of whatever I'm trying to pursue, make sure I'm working hard doing it, and that I'm having fun at the same time. And, and that lesson, I think, can be learned in almost any domain. But for me, that's how I kind of value my experience playing soccer. That's great. I love that. And I think it does tie into this idea of optimizing for the average Wednesday, which is an idea mm -hmm. that you've put forth and that I would love to hear you talk more about. Yeah, I think that in general, we, I think we look out into the future about what we can do, what we want to do. And we judge the value of those paths largely based on kind of transitory moments. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to be a professional athlete, you're going to judge that potential career path by the possibility of, of winning these championships. But I can tell you from experience that all those, those moments are incredible highs. Like what I really remember from my professional career is showing up for training each morning. I remember the big injuries and spending my whole morning and afternoon doing rehab. And that, that experience kind of teaches you what, what really matters. And I think when you kind of have the opportunity or the ability to start choosing what direction you want to go down, it's important to kind of get past these like legible areas. I think what is legible is like what is exceptional to kind of the mundane and ordinary of what does it mean to be this person? I think the kind of an easy one that, that often kind of dissuades people from being a doctor or, or whatever is they shadow a doctor and they realize that the average Wednesday is you spend more time on your computer than actually kind of treating patients. And, and that kind of dissuades people from going down this path. And I think people can be more intentional in their lives generally about what, what does your average day look like? And, and like, how, how are you optimizing for that? And not necessarily these kind of one-off successes that may or may not come. Because uh, I think that's kind of what leads to sustaining contentment or happiness or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's an awesome heuristic. Um, definitely something that I've been uh, contemplating on a bit kind of in recent months, just moving into present day here and how, Cam, you've been optimizing for the average Wednesday of late. Currently work for Alicorp, uh, best described as a venture studio. Can you describe or maybe speak to how Alicorp is different from a typical venture capital firm? Yeah, I think if you take venture capital generally, what, what they're doing is they try and look at a number of companies every year, probably in the hundreds, if not thousands, or at least decks of those companies, they then have capital, which they invest in those companies in the hope that they will continue to grow and thrive and reach a certain scale where they can then return that capital to their, their limited partners. That's a very well-worn model. What makes Alicorp different is that instead of waiting for companies to kind of come across our path or ask for us for capital, we proactively kind of create companies that we believe reach that type of scale. So we spend a lot of our time essentially trying to develop ideas, much like any other founder. We then take those ideas, we package them into a narrative, a deck, a business model, kind of a corpus of materials that we then use to attract what we believe are the exceptional founders. And I think if you, if you look at venture capital firms, one of the biggest challenges they have when they're investing is, especially at the early stages, is how do you make sure you're investing in the right team? And the beauty of kind of this venture studio approach that, that we apply is that we essentially get to create the perfect team for the idea, or at least in our conception of it, the perfect team, and then put capital behind that. So I think that's the, the biggest difference is instead of taking a reactive approach to investing, the venture studio model is a very proactive approach in that you're kind of exerting your convictions about what will work and what won't by, by creating the companies instead of waiting for them to come across your doorstep. 
So I'm curious to hear in what ways would that potentially give you guys over at Alicorp a competitive advantage over a venture firm that's simply doling out these blocks of capital? In other words, you guys are looking to ideate and then actually incubate the companies. How is that advantageous to you guys when competing against these big Silicon Valley type firms? Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting is I wouldn't kind of, I'd be cautious to frame it as competing. I think a lot of what we're trying to do is, is kind of, we're, we're trying to generate returns and our approach to that. And the reason we like starting companies is that the return profile, of those businesses end up being much better. I mean, when you're a founder in a business, you have more of the cap table in common stock. And by having that common stock, it's a much more attractive proposition as the company grows. And if we were just trying to actually purely compete with the large venture firms, we'd potentially be able to get less ownership in these companies at higher prices. And that means for the same capital investment of say a million dollars, we're going to see a lot less upside. So much like I think Matt Clifford and Entrepreneur First is trying to invest in founders pre-company, we're trying to invest in ideas pre-company. And that kind of gives us some, some pricing advantage and some upside that the traditional kind of larger scale venture firms don't see. So it's just, I think, a way to kind of differentiate ourselves in the market. So I'd love to talk more about the mechanics of an ideation session at Alicorp. So let's talk details. You go in on, let's say, a Tuesday morning. You guys are getting ready for an ideation session. What does that look like? What are the details of how you guys come up with the best business ideas you can? Yeah, I, I think to start, I think a, a lot of it is, is pre-work. I mean, I try to block off most of my mornings for essentially just exploratory thinking, research, laying the groundwork so that when we kind of come into these sessions with larger groups of people, we kind of have the foundation where each person can kind of bring their own lens and expertise to the problem at hand. When we sit down for these, these sessions, usually it takes the form of, of one person presenting. That, that person may have a thesis about the world or how it could work or should work. If they're to the point where they're, they're proposing like a, a formalized idea and this isn't just a, we're looking into say psychedelics or, or whatever it is, then I mean, it'll, it'll take the form of largely just a, a feedback session where we hope that everyone has kind of diverse perspectives. And if you kind of look at our team, we have doctors, we have someone who's playing professional sports, we have people from a strategy and finance world. So we all come from kind of a, a different worldview. And I think kind of the intersection of those and seeing at what times people resonate with the ideas we're sharing is kind of the biggest thing we're looking for in these, these ideation sessions that we do as a group. Um, early on, it's most important that someone has conviction about the idea. And I think over the progression of the idea, what we hope to see is that collectively as a group, we get more and more excited to the point where this is something we all want to be involved in. I think one of the biggest challenges in the process is not killing an idea too early and letting people who have individual passions about something push them forward long enough. I think if you look for a consensus too soon, you end up killing a lot of valuable and potentially interesting paths. So I think that's kind of the, the tension we're always playing with in these kind of sessions or ideation sessions. So kind of in the vein of this idea that in venture, the bets that really pay off are the ones that are non-consensus, right? How do you guys at Alicorp think through the idea of consensus? I know you pointed out the fact that a lot of times you guys work to not kill an idea too soon because that can really morph into something that people are really excited about. Do you guys only choose to move forward when all folks are on board with something? Or how do you think about that process? 
I think there's a few forces at play here. I think there's there's ways in which you kind of need to avoid systematic biases. And I think one is kind of consensus. If we all believe something is so obviously true and so obviously good right from the outset, we're probably obviously missing something. A lot of these things have been tried and, and understanding kind of where similar things have failed is very important, especially when it seems like you all believe this is the way it should work. I think one of the, the other things that ends up being kind of important in this process of, of ideation is that you not spend too much time on any one given idea. And I think Jason Freed from Basecamp actually has a good heuristic for this in that he tries to make sure that he scopes projects to no more than six weeks. And, and the reason being is that there's a type of attachment that forms between the work and the idea that you're, work, that you're, you're pushing forward and that if it extends much longer than six weeks, you start wanting to make sure it succeeds just because you've dedicated so much time to it. And you, and you might say like, well, that's like, you should be clear, like there's a sunk cost fallacy and just realize that's a sunk cost, but it's really hard to get past that. And so I think that what you have to make sure is that you allow people to kind of pursue their individual convictions long enough to kind of go through the ups and downs of this ideation process where you kind of have the highs of finding evidence that confirms it and the lows of having conversations that kind of seem to push on what it shouldn't be. And then ultimately after like a significant six weeks ish period of time, be able to make a decision where that person I think is able to convince people or at least some group, some form of others that this is something they want to dedicate their time to. Ultimately, like if you can't construct a narrative that other people are excited to be a part of, it's not going to, it's just not going to work <laughs> because what we need to do as a firm is not only just us get excited about it, but ultimately we need to be able to get others excited about it. And it's not just everyone gets excited. Specifically, we need to get the people who would be the good leaders for this company to see what we see. And that might mean that not all of us agree with what we're putting forward, but as long as those people do and they see that opportunity, that's what matters. So I'm curious to hear, after you guys go through the process of ideating and coming to an idea that you guys are really excited about, what is the process of then talking to users and then potentially even forming a team look like for you guys? Yeah, so I think that, I mean, talking to users is probably the cornerstone of how we both approach, approach ideation and how we approach our investing. I, there's, it's, it's harder to get a better signal than taking an early stage idea, packaging it in some way, and it could be a splash page, it could be a, if it's an enterprise sales S thing, a small PDF, talking about what it is you, you're theoretically selling, putting it in front of people and just seeing like, is their reaction kind of fall into one of three buckets? Nope, would never use this, it's terrible for X, Y, and Z reasons. Hmm, this is interesting. Or, wow, like, when can I get this? And unless you're getting pretty much a ton of wows and not the, mm, I'm, this is interesting, which is essentially the people are nice and friendly bucket, that's when we kind of look to move forward with things. And as we're kind of going through this ideation process, we essentially, at, at each phase, um, as we go from really like a small one-pager, emailing that around to five potential customers and a few experts, we look for kind of those bucketed pulse checks. We then take that feedback that we gain from those sessions and then we take that one pager and turn it into more of a fully thought out deck. We go through the same process of sending it to five to 10 potential customers. We integrate that feedback. We kind of build out our, our collateral, our material around the idea in that way. I think that kind of iterative, iterative feedback, one kind of helps build out a group of people who one are excited about the idea and two, 
want to support it. Um, and so you're almost in the process of kind of forming this idea, building the, the first set of customers that you're looking to kind of sell it into. And so it, they are kind of fundamental to the whole process of how we approach ideation. So I also want to kind of give a quick background for listeners who might not be quite as familiar with Alicorp. Can you speak to some of the companies that have been through this process and have really grown to be very successful, um, both at the hands of, I guess, yourself and then Kevin Ryan? Um, because I definitely don't want to understate kind of the success of the model so far. I mean, there have been some companies that have done really, really well coming out of this type of model, right? Yeah, so I think to give a little bit of the, the backstory, Alicorp was started in the mid-2000s by Kevin Ryan and Dwight Merriman. Kevin was the CEO and Dwight was the founder of DoubleClick, which you may have heard of, but it's what powers Google's third-party advertising network now. So largely, probably something very important to your life that probably goes under the radar. After they sold DoubleClick to Google, they started Alicorp under the idea that their kind of entrepreneurial talent could be best leveraged not by starting any single company, but by starting a series of companies. So starting in 2008, they used this model in what I think was probably one of the, the first manifestations of a venture studio to start Guilt Group, which was an e-commerce site, and then start Business Insider, which you probably know as the media company, MongoDB, which if you're not a developer, is a database company. There was a brief kind of gap in Alicorp's history where Kevin was stepping in as CEO's Guilt Group because it was growing so fast. But after that kind of settled down, the organization kind of reconsolidated and we've then launched Zola, which is the wedding registry, Nomad Health, which is a marketplace for doctors and nurses, Coedition, Workframe, Truebird, which it's unfortunate this is a podcast, but is an automatic kind of coffee vending company. If you've seen Cafe X, it's a kind of friendlier version of that. It's definitely worth watching a video on them. And then a series of companies over the last couple of years that are still in stealth mode, but hopefully in the near future, you'll be able to learn more about. So to kind of zoom in on this, let's do like a quick thought experiment here. Uh, in kind of the, the FIFA creative player version of maxing out all your stats as an employee of Valley Corp, what would it look like to construct a model of the type of person who would be the best in the world at what you guys do in terms of startup ideation and execution? Yeah, I think... <laughs> Funny, this is a this is a very good exercise because it should be informative for me in terms of what I should do. <laughs> I think I think at the oh, at the high level, I think one thing that's very important in this process is to have a sense of play. And I think this kind of extends across industries, but in particular, what we're doing is in many ways a creative pursuit. And I think it's hard to find interesting things to do without like a strong sense of play. And that you need to be kind of toying with how does how does the way in which recurring SaaS revenue models work now in enterprise software and how could that be applied to direct sales and essentially be playing these different types of matching games and thinking by analogy as you explore the world of opportunities. I think that if you don't have that sense of play, your thinking gets too constrained, become too serious, and you don't end up seeing the things that, that like you said, are non-consensus right. So I think having that is probably one of the more important qualities. I think the next one is probably a satisfaction with the struggle. Most of the things we come up with are going to be bad ideas. And that kind of struggle is something that you're going to need to appreciate. And I think kind of having a, a way to understand why you're not doing something or why you're not pursuing something and letting that inform your models of what should be pursued going forward is really important. I think kind of getting a better understanding of just in terms of, I guess, in terms of the struggle of convincing others and communicating 
what it is you believe in and why, and being able to kind of construct those narratives that I've been referring to is probably the, the next skill. I mean, ultimately part of what it is is being a good salesperson and that you need to be able to kind of weave these stories that create kind of a, a new vision of the future that other people want to be involved in. So I think that type of communication and storytelling can't be undervalued. I think the, the last two I would potentially highlight is one being able to sit at the tension between kind of creation and destruction. I think this is kind of the hardest balance, um, especially when you combine what we do on the starting company side with the investing side. When you're investing, you essentially need to get really good at saying no to almost everything and saying yes to very few things. And on the kind of company creation side, you need to be able to kind of be excited about the possibility of what this could be. And then ultimately come to the point where despite that excitement, you're willing to kill most of the things for the one thing that's worth pursuing. And I think that's kind of a hard balance to strike, but kind of getting good at sitting at the intersection of that tension is important. The last one I would say is, is having strong beliefs, but holding them weakly. You need to kind of have conviction about what should be done and be willing to kind of act on that and put yourself out on a limb. But you need to be able to kind of update your worldview, update your model when you receive kind of sufficient feedback and do that quickly. The worst thing is kind of get stuck in just a, a rut or kind of a local minimum just because you don't know how to update or change your beliefs. But when you're doing stuff in such like environments of high uncertainty, you need to have strong beliefs or else you're not really going to move forward. Yeah. And that juxtaposition of things in terms of as an investor, you're constantly saying no to things versus as someone who's potentially going to be a founder helping to found these businesses, you're trying to say yes to almost everything and thinking through the ways in which, okay, how can this become a billion dollar company? How does someone like you personally optimize for performance in this type of a job? I'm curious what kinds of content you like to consume that you feel like really inform you on kind of a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I think that there's actually, I, honestly, like there's one answer that I think is like very obvious and a lot of people in the tech industry consume, but it's just like Ben Thompson's trajectory, I think is an incredible job of not only just he has very clear thinking, but he, over time, if you consistently read his writing, each day or each week, he's constantly trying to create a more fully formed worldview. So not only is he just trying to go out there, or he's not going out there just to ask other people what they think, but he's trying to kind of go through this process of integrating new information, new ideas into kind of how he processes what it means to kind of go about and, and, and create strategy for businesses. And I think that like on a meta level, like one of the best things you can do in terms of the content you consume is not so much just look at it as purely this is interesting because it's giving me information that's useful to apply. But when you follow someone for long enough, how can you learn from their, their process of kind of forming these views on the world? Like what are they, what are they doing to kind of build better and better models for themselves? And I think that, I think that Ben Thompson does a very good job of this. I think that Alex Danko is, is kind of going and starting that journey now where he's essentially using this, this written word as a way to kind of create an, an internally consistent worldview. And I think, I think that's where I would optimize my content consumption is where can you find places where you can, vicariously learn about how to kind of create your own worldview. I think that a lot of people over-optimize um, for, I'm going to read this and it's going to be a book about Richard Branson and he has three principles of success and I'm going to apply those principles versus I'm going to read this book about Richard Branson and I'm going to see what process he went through for finding those principles that work for him. And I think that's, that's roughly how I try to think about the content I consume is if I'm consuming it, I don't want to just try and consume it to steal the end result, 
I want to learn the process for how they got there and then be able to apply that process to my own life so that hopefully I kind of discover the, the models and principles that make sense for me as I kind of do my work day to day. Cam, I'm really curious to hear your answer to this, but broadly, how do you think through what is worth my time? And obviously right now you work for a venture studio and at some level you made a decision, okay, this is definitely worth my time for two years, five years, 10 years, uh, what have you. But I guess broadly speaking, how do you think through what is worth your time in terms of your life's work and your career? Yeah, this is, this is an incredibly interesting question. And I don't, hopefully this answer doesn't trivialize it, but I have this kind of mental model to kind of judge what's worth my time. And it's a, it's a pretty silly one, so I'll lay it out for you. But basically, I like to imagine a dinner between my present self and my future self take however many, 10 years, five years, 20 years out. And I like to imagine that dinner given what I'm, whatever I'm considering pursuing. And I like to think, who's gonna pay for that dinner? Is the present self going to pay for that because they feel guilty about the choices that were made? Or is the future self gonna be paying for it because they wanna say thank you for, for having gone down that path? And I think that's largely like an abstraction for, this is, you're talking about bigger choices, but generally like the cost of good habits is in the present and the cost of bad habits is in the future. And I like to think and make sure that the choices I'm making are kind of leading to a world where my future self is going to want to take my present self out for dinner. <laughs> and I know that sounds silly, but it kind of gives me a, a bit of like a gut compass on, on whether I'm going down the right path. And I think when it comes to kind of the choice to pursue this kind of venture capital, venture studio world, in part, what I find so exciting about it is that I know that I'm just learning about so many different things and meeting with so many different people that it's hard for me not to imagine that this will put me in a place where I have incredibly high optionality about what's possible in the next 10 years. And, and, and I don't know where it's going to take me, but I feel confident that it's pushing me to a place where my future self will be incredibly thankful for what my present self is doing. That's awesome. And Paul Graham has a uh, pretty interesting essay about this in terms of just staying up wind in your career choices. Uh, but it definitely seems like something that's kind of at the forefront of your mind, just in terms of how you structure your career. Uh, and Cam, just kind of the last question that Ethan and I like to ask all our guests, and you spoke to this a bit in terms of the Ben Thompson, but what are some of your favorite books and podcasts and how have they changed the way that you view the world? So I think one of my, one of my favorite books that I think is not spoken about much is a book called Why Greatness Can't Be Planned by Kenneth Stanley and Joel Lehman. The book is an exploration in terms of they're computer science and computer scientists. And so they're exploring how do you create machine learning systems that can do quote unquote great things. But their exploration alludes to generally how do you kind of reach greatness in whatever path you're pursuing. And their whole argument hinges on the idea that, that greatness can't be found through heuristics. Essentially, they need to be discovered through serendipity and novelty. I think it's probably a little bit of a consistent thread through this, but the general idea is that if you have a very clear heuristic for how to achieve greatness, then it just can't possibly be a true heuristic because greatness is something that's unique and individual. And if there is a known path for getting there, then it will not be great. And so I think there's this, this principle that is kind of alluded to that you need to kind of have this, this path or this journey that has some forms of exploration, some striving for novelty, that puts you in places where it's very hard for others to end up just because that'll kind of lead to the uniqueness that is kind of like, I think the prerequisite for doing whatever you consider to be great. 
And so I think there's a lot of thinking that is related to that, that people give different words. I think one of them that Keith Raboy pushes is this idea of a personal monopoly. But what I love about why greatness can't be planned is that I think that it alludes to a way in which you can structure how you live to end up in a place that is in some way great, whatever it may be. So that's one. The other one that I think informed a decent amount of my thinking was Man's Search for Meaning by, by Viktor Frankl. I just think the general skill of can you ascribe meaning to suffering and then find a way to kind of move forward in face of that is something that's universally useful. I read that book during a time when I was experiencing a lot of suffering. I had dropped out of school to kind of start playing professional soccer five games into my professional career. I essentially have a catastrophic knee injury. I remember sitting in my bed after the surgery where they told me, look, there's a 20% chance that you're able to play soccer again by playing soccer. I mean, you're going to be able to like kick a ball. We're not saying you're going to be able to get out there on the field again and play anywhere near at a professional level. And I think that was very hard to hear given that I had just chosen to essentially sacrifice this, this path out of Princeton and computer science that I think was stable and clearly one that would lead to certain forms of success and was now kind of stuck in a bed watching my friends graduate. And what the book did was kind of inform how can I get the most out of the suffering? What is the meaning of this? And it allowed me to kind of reframe that struggle as an opportunity to learn about resilience and what type of meaning and value that would give me later on in life. So I think that's a book that I think could help a lot of people, especially as they face things that, that may be challenging. Gotcha. Cam, thanks so much. Really appreciate you coming on the show. No problem. Enjoy the conversation. been Ashley Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.